Live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber. She's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber. Cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber with two drinks in her hand. The matriarch of fashion, secret sewer glasses. Can't look away. Ask her, does she do it? Really nothing to it. She's got that sound on it, yeah. If you have a party, or if you're feeling naughty, call up the house of the maid. Here comes your favorite gal. Hello, and welcome to the Amber Live interviews. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live. We want to remind you to subscribe to us both here and at youtube.com slash amberlive. You don't want to miss a moment of Amber LeMay, the Larry King of drag queens. There's so much more to the show than just the interviews that Amber does each week. We have hundreds of interviews, comedy sketches, songs, and more on YouTube that you can watch anytime. But... In the meantime, you can listen to the amazing interviews right here. Now enjoy this episode of Amber Live Interviews. From being a witness to the Stonewall Riot, to being a founding member of organizations such as the Gay Liberation Front and Gay Youth, to interrupting live television broadcasts to protest their coverage of the gay rights movement, to being a founding member of the Philadelphia Gay News and an award-winning author, to dancing in the White House, Mark Siegel has seen and done it all. As former Amber Live guest Bruce Valanche stated before Will and Grace and Ellen, there was Mark Siegel. We have a lot to talk about. Mark, come on in. Thank you. I'm so glad to see you, and I love those glasses. Well, thank you. All the better to see you with, Mark. My gosh, I expected an old, decrepit person coming up on the screen after all the things you have done. I sometimes feel old and decrepit. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's let's go back in the Wayback Machine to that June night in 1969 on Christopher Street. Why were you there and what happened? Well, uh, like most kids of my age at that time, which was 1969, I was born in 1951. Do the math and you know that I'm 72 years old. Um, uh, we were invisible as a people. Uh, you wouldn't see us on TV. You wouldn't read about us in your newspapers. We weren't on radio. There was no cable TV. Um, so we were the unpolite thing in society. We were all, 99.9% .9 of our community was in the closet. So growing up, I was wondering, who was I? Why was I? What was I about? And there was, wasn't any place to really look. I mean, if I went to my library, which is about the only place I might find five books. Those five books would tell me I'm a criminal. They would tell me I'm insane. Uh, they would tell me I'm illegal, um, that I'm not going to have a job, that the, at the end of my life I might commit suicide or be killed. I mean, that was the image of gay people. Yeah. And not only that, I also knew that a few miles away from my house in Philadelphia was the Eastern Psychiatric, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. Important to know that name. Why? Because that's where they did aversion therapy to make gay people not gay. In other words, legalized torture. So knowing all that, um, and thinking that since I didn't know anybody else who was like me at 18 years old, it was 
why would I stay in a city of 1.6 million when I'm the only one like me? So I went where I thought there might be others, New York. Um, and that was five, uh, I'm sorry, six weeks before Stonewall. And what does someone like me who wants to know who they are and wants to meet other people do? Well, you go to a place called Greenwich Village because you hear there's hippies down there and people who aren't norms to society. And at that point, I thought I wasn't a norm in society. So you go down there uh, and you soon discover Christopher Street, which at that time was the mega center of the LGBT community. And, you know, I started going there uh, literally late in the afternoon and stayed till early in the morning. And my typical routine was walk up and down Christopher Street, meet my friends, and you become friends with people very quickly. And it was a hangout for kids my age. And so we'd walk them down, we'd talk about the things that you would normally talk about as a youth, fashions, entertainment, a little politics maybe, but that little politics was always questioning who we were and why society thought of us the way they did. Because quite honestly, we never thought there was anything wrong with us. And we thought maybe it was society that there was something with. And why is that? Why can't we do anything about it? And we didn't know. And at that point, you ran across a few young activists who were asking the same questions and had the same frustrations and who were, like me, uh, marginalized and at that point didn't have any future to look for. So at the end of each night, we would usually end up in a bar called the Stonewall. Why you asked the Stonewall? Because it literally was the only place in all of New York that people like me could dance. And what 18-year-old doesn't want to dance their ass off? It also was a place I could hold hands, cuddle, kiss someone that I might love. The only place in the entire city. Wow. So that's why we went there. Might have been, you know, a shack. Might have been watered-down drinks. Might have been mafia-controlled, illegal. It didn't matter. What most people don't say is that when we went inside there, it was our safe place most of the time. When wasn't it safe? When the police came in and got their payoff. And then the big time, of course, was the night they came in to get their payoff, but didn't just want to pay off. That night, they wanted more. What did they do? They wanted to destroy the bar and destroy the people inside of it. And my night that night was very simple. Uh, I was standing there with my friends as usual in the back. Uh, I could picture it now because I was just there uh, a few weeks ago in the empty part of the Stonewall, not the part that's, that you see open right now, but right next door is the real Stonewall. And they're building Ooh. that as a visitor center, which opens um, this coming June. Uh, so Stonewall Visitor, official Stonewall Visitor Center opens this June on the 55th anniversary of the riots. So um, that night, standing there in the back of that, uh, listening to my favorite music, which is probably Fifth Dimension, Let the Sun Shine In. <laughs> uh, and all of a sudden, the lights blink. Now remember, I'd only been in New York for six weeks. So I say to my friend, what's going on? They, go, they say very casually, oh, it's just another raid. And I'm a little alarmed. I don't know what that is. I'm, I look like the boy next door. Um, and so at that point, it wasn't quiet. What happened was they 
bursted through the front doors. They started axing up the bar, throwing bottles, destroying the bar, destroying everything they could, taking people, slamming them up against the wall, calling them everything you could possibly imagine. Um, this went on for quite a while. Then finally, uh, they decided to card people uh, and let them out. I was one of the first because I looked like the kid next door. Um, so that was the violence inside. My reaction to the violence inside during it was happening was just in shock, uh, frightened, in shock, and thinking, gee, someone should call the cops. <laughs> yeah, and I realized these were the cops. It also made me realize how low in society are we that the people who are supposed to keep peace in society feel they can do this to us. You were 18 years old. Um, did you drop out of high school or was this after high school? After high school. I went to New York um, after high school. Uh, my parents thought I was going to college. I was not. Um, if I tell them now, if people ask me today, what uh, school, uh, college did you graduate? I always say Gay Liberation Front. <laughs> Uh, so eventually they just let us out um, at one by one. I was one of the first. I went across the street and just kept looking at it in bewilderment. Mm -hmm. And as my friends got out, um, they would join me or uh, join the crowd that was beginning to form there. Anybody that had a decent job or family in New York, the minute they got out, they ran for the subway or got a cab or ran home. They didn't want to stay. The only people who stayed were the marginalized among us, uh, whether it be street kids like me, uh, trans people who then were called drag queens, people who cross-dressed, um, the black community. We're the ones who stayed. We're the ones who stayed. Um, why did we stay? Uh, I think because we wanted answers. I think that's the only thing I would say. Um, and what precipitated what happened next uh, I can only tell you, for me, um, it was the burning sensation of what my family had gone through. Um, it was in my DNA. Uh, so at that point, people started uh, throw. well, the police wanted to get outside. Um, they opened the door. We threw things, whatever we had, whether it was coins in our pockets, a little stone, an empty uh, soda can, whatever. Um, and they closed the doors. They tried that three times. It became what people now know is the riot. My reaction during that period of time was, well, it's 1969. Women are fighting for their rights. Blacks are fighting for their rights. Latinos are fighting for their rights. What about us? And then it, it, it somehow, and all of this is in an instant, you know, that I can crystallize now. I didn't realize at that point. Um, it was thinking about my grandmother, Fanny Weinstein, and uh, her story. Her story was that as an infant, she, they, she lived in what is called the Russian Empire, which was Poland, Ukraine, Russia proper, um, Belarus. And uh, they had these things called pogroms where they went into Jewish uh, villages and destroyed them. So my grandmother had to leave Russia, came to the United States. And in the 1920s, she was a suffragette. And when I was 13, she took me to my first civil rights march. So I got to march wow. with people uh, like Cecil B. Mill, um, Robert N. C. Nix, um, and I got to know them. Uh, and then b being in Stonewall, my first reaction is, I know people are fighting for the rights. 
Why can't we be among them? And at about that time, or somewhere during that time, Marty Robinson came up to me, and what I'm known for is he's the one who gave me the chalk and said, go up and down Christian Street and write tomorrow night Stonewall. That was you. That was me. Thanks to Marty Robinson. Uh, tell us who Marty Robinson is. Marty Robinson was someone who, along with Craig Robinson, um, sorry, Craig Robwell, uh, belonged to uh, Mattachine Society of New York. But they were very young, and their ideals of what we should be and how we should fight for our rights were very different from Mattachine. Mattachine thought we should be very respectful and quiet and, you know, wear suits and ties and women had to wear a dress. No drag queens need apply. Um, drag queens are my friends. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I didn't believe in any form of discrimination. Uh, so uh, Marty, uh, Marty and Craig on his own, each separately, decided to create their own little organizations that were going to do more. Uh, Craig started a youth organization, and Marty started um, what he called the Action Group, which I think said, and I was one of the four members of that. There were only four of us, and we didn't last very long. But so that's why Marty came up to me in the crowd, because I was the only one there uh, that was part of the Action Group and said, this is what you can do. This will spur action. This will start movement. And from that, from the, uh, and I'd say from the, those actions that night, from the Ashes of Stonewall, came Gay Liberation Front. And we all joined that in, uh, in one way, shape, or form. And Gay Liberation Front is what changed the world to where we are today. Amazing. We've got some pictures. Uh, Russell, show us some pictures here. And uh, if you would please tell us, Mark, explain these pictures. Ah, okay. So um, this one, this is one of my favorite pictures. So I wrote a memoir called, and then I danced uh, traveling the road to LGBT equality came out about four years ago. At that time, I had no pictures whatsoever of that first year in New York from 69 to 70, basically the year uh, that from Stonewall to the first pride. Uh, in that year, we organized and did things for the first time that had never been done before. This is a demonstration against NYU uh, because of their treatment of uh, the LGBT community. Um, and that's me on the right with my arm up. That's my left hand. And next to me is my good friend, Jerry Hughes, another member of Gay Liberation Front. And behind us with the big handbag is Sylvia Rivera, another member of Gay Liberation Front. And we're marching up 8th Street towards um, Weinstein Hall at NYU. Which later became, and from that march came a sit-in, um, the Weinstein Hall sit-in, which was the first <laughs> LGBT sit-in demonstration ever. Were you con communicating with your family back in Philadelphia during this? That is a great question. So each of us in Gay Liberation Front had a committee or whatever we were doing or we were part of the committee. Um, I created the Gay Youth uh, Committee, uh, or CELL as we called it then. And I was president of Gay Youth, Gay Youth New York. And so I had a hotline. The hotline was in my apartment and I would, people would call and they would either be thinking of suicide or wanting to come out to their parents or friend. And I would advise them all that time. I had not come out to my own parents. So eventually I called my parents being very brave as I am. I called my parents to tell them that I was gay. Um, phone rang. My father answered the phone. I said, dad, um, I have to tell you something. He asked what? I said, I'm gay. And his response was, I knew that already. Here, speak to your mother. 
<laughs> Absolutely surprised to hear that. I was shocked. I told my mother, uh, and my mother's reaction to that was somewhat different. Um, long silence. Uh, and then she finally come, came back and said, you're my son. I love you. Um, but I'm worried about you in my old age, in your old age. Um, she was alive today. I got to say to her, hey, mom, I'm in my old age. I'm very happy. And guess what, mom? I'm happily married. <laughs> Russ, we'll show another picture. Oh, that's that's what, one of your messages. Yeah. That's me being arrested outside Independence Hall when I handcuffed myself to the Liberty Bell. <laughs> really? <laughs> what what became of that? Uh, you handcuffing yourself? Uh, went to trial for disturbing the peace and several other little things, um, and I'm sure they found me guilty. And I was given a fine of some sort, but um, you know, I got a ride in what we used to call paddy wagons. We no longer call them that. Uh, and got a nickel ride, which is when you're put in the wagon, uh, they handcuff you behind your back, but don't handcuff you to anywhere else. So, and they go over every single pothole they can go on. So you're bounced around the wagon and they take a trip for a few miles. And so by the time you get to the police station, you're pretty bruised up. Oh my next picture. Uh, um, that is either the first or second year. Oh no, this is this is really a, a famous picture. Again, one I didn't have when I wrote the book. Uh, this is the first march that we created. Primarily, Marty Robinson and Martha Shelley did this, organized this march. It was from Washington Square Park to Stonewall, and it was um, one month, the exact date, one month after Stonewall riot. And I'm all the way over on the right-hand side, my hand covering my face. That's what I looked like at Stonewall. Next picture. Ah, this is 1973. Um, this is the um, Phil Donahue show. Um, and the gentleman, to, obviously the gentleman to my right is Phil Donahue. The one to my left is representing the Association, the uh, American Association of Psychiatrists, APA. Yeah. Um, American Psychiatric Association. Thank you. Um, and from that debate, many others eventually that year, the American Psychiatric Association devoted to take homosexuality out of the nomenclature. So in one day, we were we went from insanity to sane. <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest and I watched Phil Donahue because he was broadcasting from Dayton, Ohio at the time. Did you go and to that's Dayton? Where that I show is done. <laughs> what were your impressions of Phil Donahue? Oh, wonderful. Well, okay, I did Donahue show three different times. Um, yeah, uh, he and I had a good rapport. Uh, and when I first did it, I didn't know it was 1971, I believe. Um, yeah. And I didn't know quite, um, no one had done a syndicate no one out LGBT person had done a syndicated talk show before. And I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go. And uh, his reaction to me was before the show, Mark, I have an audience. They're mostly made up of Bible thumpers. You're going to get a lot of questions they're gonna, and they're not going to like you. Are you able? And I said, yep, my job in my mind. So this is where I really came up with the idea of visibility is the most important thing in the world. And so 
I didn't mind if people didn't like me. That didn't matter. I was there for the cause, you know. And what I meant by the cause was that if I'm visible, that means people are to go home and they're to discuss the issue. They normally Fast. don't do that. We were before that point a people you never talked about in polite company. No. No. My goal was to make people talk about us. So hate me all you want. Every you know, um, I'm getting you to talk about us. That's my job. And I well, took thank it you so much. a job. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, we've got so much more to talk to. We're going to take a short break here, but we're going to be back with Mark Siegel because we got a lot more to talk about. Be right back. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJD Pro or by visiting us at amberlive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. And now, back to this incredible interview. All right, we're back with Mark Siegel. Fascinating first segment. Now, you did all this activism. What were you doing for money? How did you survive? There's a line from a Tennessee Williams show called, I lived off the friendship of my the generosity of my friends. <laughs> but when that became almost impossible, um, my parents also sent me some money. Um, and I also was a taxi cab driver. Wow. Yeah, I, okay. I, still, I have a hack license. Still? I've renewed it many years. But yeah, I was a New York City cab driver. Talk about terrifying. Imagine if I was your cab driver. Well, I bet you could write a book about your ex, your stories from that too. That would be a good chapter. It it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. As you moved into the seventies uh, and eighties, you became more um, action oriented. You really wanted to get your word out to the public, and one of those was interrupting live broadcasts. Um, Russell, roll this clip. We had some interesting impromptu moments on the evening news. Once a couple of young men who said they were journalism students wanted to see the broadcast, so we let them stand in back of the studio, back in back of the cameras there. Suddenly they broke from the background and they ran in front of the cameras. Frankly, I was a little frightened at first. I didn't know they might have guns or knives. I didn't know what was going on. Well, rather interesting development in the studio here. A protest demonstration right in the middle of CBS News studio. Over the years, I've kept in touch with one of those young men. His name's Mark Siegel, brilliant young fellow. He operates a gay newspaper in Philadelphia and very successful. Wow. Not only did you do that, but he became an acquaintance and a correspondent with you. Tell us how that came about. Well, uh, the whole idea of the disruption of the show was part of what I just mentioned about uh, visibility. Uh, in Gay Liberation Front from 6971, we, for the first time, demonstrated outside police headquarters, demonstrated against media, demonstrated against almost anybody. But those demonstrations uh, were uh, only seen by a few thousand people, maybe a few hundred, few thousand, have very little impact. And I realized very quickly that if we're going to make a dent in society, we have to reach out to society. They have to find out about us. And there's too, 
or whatever it was, 200 million people in America at that point, or 180, I think it was, 180 million people in America at that point. Um, how many of them were discussing us? I needed to get them to talk about us. That was my belief. Um, uh, my belief is visibility brings discussion. Discussion brings education. Education will eventually bring equality. Um, so since uh, so I wrote a letter to CBS saying, hey, when I come in and talk about your, you know, the fact that you censor LGBT people, there's nothing on your news about us. You have no programming about us. Um, let's talk about it. Of course, they didn't reply. And I tried like three times. So that was uh, so then I decided, okay, they're not going to talk to us. We're going to talk to them. After all, the airwaves are public, aren't they? They get licensed from the FCC. Um, so on that December night in 1973, uh, Walter was reading the news, and uh, I stuck between him and the camera, sat on his desk, so um, the camera could only see me, put put the sign in front of the camera, Um the CBS network went blank for seven minutes uh, while they rustled me to the floor, wrapped me in wires and whatever. Um, hard to remember all that, quite honestly. Um, and when they came back on, Walter did a little message. Well, we had a demonstration here. <laughs> um, uh, imagine what seven minutes of network TV would cost today. But here's another better figure. Um Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. And if you got your news those days, you know, remember there was no internet. There was nothing like this. There, you know, we weren't mentioned in newspapers, magazines. Um, if you got your news, you got it from Walter Cronkite. He had 60 million people watching that broadcast. For the first time, 60 million people saw an out gay man talking about gay rights. That was the first time ever. Um, so I got arrested. We had a trial. During the trial, um, uh, what was your charge? What, what did they charge you with? Oh, I got charged with breaking the Federal Communications Act, uh, which was ten year imprisonment and ten thousand dollar fine. Hmm. Uh, and they did prosecute, and we went to court. And during the break in the trial, uh, I'm talking to my lawyer, and I feel a tap on my shoulder. Um, I turn around, and the gentleman says, "You must be Mark Siegel." I looked at him and said, you must be Walter Cronkite. And he then said, without acknowledging anything, he, his next line was, why did you do what you did? And I said, because your show um, is biased and censors LGBT people. And he looked at me in a very strange way. And I just looked at him. I said, he took umbrage. And I said, if I can prove it to you, will you change it? And he just stood there, no comment. Um, I could just... Uh, the image of Walter was in. Oh, my gosh. And so I said, uh, you ran a story uh, last week on International Women's Year being proclaimed and 5,000 people walking down 6th Avenue. He said, well, that was news. I said, I agree with you. It was. But why didn't you cover Gay Pride Day when the same amount of LGBT people ran down the same street in June? Silence. I said, last uh, week. Again, you did your second story. You talked about, uh, for the third time in a row, New York City Council had refused to pass the gay rights ordinance. You said, don't you think that was news? We're talking about gay issues. I said, why didn't you mention the 26 other cities that have passed gay rights laws? That's a bias. He turned around, went back into the courtroom. Next up, the prosecution called Walter Cronkite as a witness. First question to him was, when uh, Mr. Sigal trespassed into your studio, and he said, excuse me, he, said, he didn't trespass, we invited them in. Oh, my. 
<laughs> oh my, I, I'm getting for glimpse just thinking about that. But the better part was the following week, if you came back from a commercial or coming back after the first commercial, um, you would see him standing in a mappy line, say standing, this is old tech, remember, with a pointer pointing out cities that have passed gay rights ordinances. Remember, he oh, never gave an answer, but that was the answer. And soon after that, I went to an event, I don't remember which, and I passed him in the hallway, and um, he turned around and said, Mark, which shocked me. And we talked for a few minutes, and he gave me his card and said, next time you're in New York, give me a call. We'll have lunch or dinner. And we did, um, and we became friends. Uh, and the reason Philadelphia Gay News is most Realistically awarded uh, LGBT media is because my mentor was Walter Conrad, who I was able to call asking for any advice I needed. And that's also why, in that clip you just showed, he takes pride in saying that because he feels that the paper is as good as it felt, that the paper was as good as it was because he helped mentor it. And that oh, was kept his death. We never, I never talked about that until he died. Until well, until he did his TV um, um, sign off. Then I was able to talk about it because when you have a friend like Walter, you, you don't post about it. And I didn't know how comfortable you would be on that. But I mean, there's an interview I did with Walter, which I did two years before his death, two or three years before his death, at one of our lunches. Um, and I got, and I said, you know, you know, Walter, I've never ever done an interview with you in all this time. Would you mind if I did one? And he said, yes. Yeah. So I took out the tape recorder and we did it at the table. Um, I transcribed it when I got back and God, this had to be 2006, 2004 maybe. Um, after transcribing it, uh, when you have Walter as a friend, you feel protective. Um, I wouldn't run the interview. Because the interview talked about how much he was for gays in the military. The interview talked about how much he supported gay marriage. Um, and I thought it was way ahead of its time. And I didn't publish it. Um, upon his death in 2009, I published it. What were some of the other programs that you trespassed? Um, the Today Show, where Barbara Walters um, became the first newscaster, national network newscaster to talk about a gay demonstration, because after the disruption, I was being held out in the hall by police, um, and she came outside and said, I want to know why you did what you did. And I gave her the whole story, and she went, uh, and she's taking notes, and as she's taking notes, her producer came outside and says, you're on, get in there. And she said, not until I get this story. Um, and so she went back in and explained why we did what we did and talked about what we thought, why homosexuals thought about um, networks as censoring and being biased on LGBT issues. First time that ever got done. That was November of 1973. Um, the Tonight Show, um, the Mike Douglas Show, um, a local news show here in Philadelphia. I can't believe that by this time your picture wasn't on every studio door saying, do not let this person in. You are right. We got to that point. Um, we got to that point where the where Variety did an article about all of this happening and, and stating very simply that I caused, what was it, um, up to that point, $700,000 in network tape delays. 
I I wasn't counting money. I didn't have the slightest idea it was costing them anything. Not the slightest. So at that point, the network started discussing with LGBT organizations um, how they could do better treatment. This is long before the days of GLAD. All right, we've got some more pictures. Russell, let's let's see some more pictures. Oh, this is... This is the Today Show. That's okay, (laughs) but I don't even remember his name. But that's me. Notice by this point I have long hair, the look, and mustache. Notice that I'm totally different from that picture in 1970 or 69. Well, the times were changing. What's this? Um, So somewhere along the line, uh, a... uh, uh, owner of a TV of a radio station came to me and said, you know, in our city, there are uh, in every major city in America, there are uh, sh- uh, news stations where they do not or radio stations where they do nothing but talk shows. And they uh, and some of them are even all news all the time. And so he said, we want to do a talk, a, you know, talk variety show. But we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have the first gay talk show? And so we wanted you to host that. So for about two years, I hosted a weekly LGBT radio show. And I had like the mayors of their city on and the governor of Pennsylvania. And I also had, who was that horrible guy? Downey. Morton Downey Jr. Am I getting that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, He had a talk show where he really was homophobic and before... Rush Limbo and all those guys. He was the daddy of that genre. Yeah. And he came on my show and fascinating. But it was interesting. Ah, um, that's me all the way to right in 1970, 71. Notice the hair's beginning. Mustache hasn't gotten there yet. The hair hasn't gotten there. And you can tell by the clothes I have that I don't have very much money, obviously. And this is a demonstration outside time life because they wouldn't do any... Um, uh, LGBT news stories. Time Life was a news magazine that was a weekly in the United States at that point. Uh, this is Stonewall um, uh, 50. Uh, and uh, that's me all the way on the right. Next, uh, This is at the, Stone, the uh, Stonewall 50 gala concert that was held at Brooklyn's, whatever that, what is the Brooklyn uh, Stadium? Barclays. Barclays. Yeah, so that's uh, uh, myself, Mark Horn, um, Carla J, all Gay Liberation Front members, along with Whoopi Goldberg. Um, And strangely enough, I thought this was all we were doing, but when they started the show, um, 18,000 people in that stadium. When they started the show, Whoopi got on as the MC. And the first thing she do- did was introduce the members of Gay Liberation Front and asked us to come up on stage with her. And we got a standing ovation from 18,000 people. That was, I got chills just speaking about it. It was, oh, my bad. So, how could you ever expect that 50 years ago? We had no idea. Um, that is obviously Elton John um, on. July 4th, 2005, um, Philadelphia, city of Philadelphia allowed me to take over its biggest day, July 4th, and do a concert with Elton John on the Philadelphia Parkway um, for about 200,000 people. And the whole concept was to make an AIDS awareness concert. 
Um, and it was broadcast live. And the opening for the concert was my good friend, Walter Cronkite. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, I think, 2017, two years before the 50th anniversary. Um, and we decided those people of us who were the original marchers in the first Gay Pride in 1970, which was officially called Christopher Street Gay Liberation Day a per, a March and uh, Gay in, uh, to march once again with a banner. That's the banner. And in that group is, you see Jerry, who's with the uh, sunglasses. Uh, I'm there over there. Oh, that's Dennis. That's Martha Shelley holding the other end. Rick Landsman holding one end of it as well. And all of us behind it. And one more picture. Who's that guy? Uh, that is 2019. Um, that is Joe Biden. And we are literally inside Stonewall um, during Stonewall 50. Um, and we met, talked a little. Um, I've seen him since a couple of times. Um, but uh, and he also was very helpful in helping us create the nation's first LGBT-friendly senior affordable housing apartment buildings, which was done under the Obama um, Biden administration at and funded at $19.8 million. And we're about ready to celebrate the 10th anniversary of that coming up in February. In your introduction, I mentioned that you danced at the White House. Tell me about that. Well, in, let's see. I don't even remember the year anymore. I could look up on my uh, wall of memories and uh, probably tell you. But um, what I was working with... Uh, the office of vice president and president to create that housing project uh, for uh, affordable seniors. And uh, I was harassing them to death, to no end. So uh, there was going to, and I'm a member of the media. So every year the White House has um, media uh, Christmas receptions. And so one year I got an invitation uh, from the president to come to the reception. Um, and it's an event where uh, you get to dance. And so uh, I asked if it was okay to bring uh, my future husband, Jason, with me. Um, and that's where I got the title for my book. And then I danced. You look on the cover of the book, you see me being arrested. And never would that person being arrested ever expect that the president of the United States would invite him to bring his husband to the White House to dance? Inconceivable. Inconceivable. You've got great stories, Mark, and we've got one more segment to hear some more. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this interview. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that we stream on YouTube every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out the hundreds of past interviews and all the comedy sketches, songs, and more from previous episodes. And remember to subscribe to us both here and on youtube.com slash amberlive so you don't miss a single new guest or a hysterical comedy sketch. We're back with Mark Siegel, and we have some great things to talk about still. So after all the activism, I know you're still consider yourself an activist, um, you created the Philadelphia Gay News. Tell me about that. Well, it's, it's sort of amazing how that came about because um, 
it, it has to do with not just Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania as a whole. So people often ask me, uh, I mean, I'm going in tangent. If you don't like the tangent, let me know. Uh, yeah. People often ask me um, how I got, what happened after the Walter Cronkite zap? You know, what did it do? What did it change? And the things that happened after that was, well, all of a sudden, all these talk shows started inviting me on to talk about gay issues because who is that guy who did that thing? What the heck? You know, I was sensationalistic, if you if you would be. I was fodder for talk. Um, that opened up all the talk shows. To, to this day, you see the LGBT subjects are always on. Um, so, which again, brings visibility, which brings education, which brings equality. So, I'm thrilled. It also brings the fact that you have gay characters now on TV. I could turn on almost any network and there'll be a gay character. There'll be either a gay newsman, weather person, sports person, or gay character on TV. And that still gives me tears to this day when I see that, to be very honest. Um, so I'm very happy about that. So I, a few years ago, I was speaking at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and they had the Stonewall Rising exhibits that they were showing. And Part of that exhibit was they show that tape that you showed. And so the woman w- woman asked me to go take a tour of people through the exhibit. And when I got to that, she wanted to know, um, what did that lead to? And I told her what I just told you. And then she says, no, no, what else did it lead to? She already realized or knew, but she wanted to make me realize, which was what a gift that was. And I said, well, you know, one thing I did was I wrote to the governor of Pennsylvania and said, I, I would like to meet with you. Now, in that time, which was 1975, 73, no governor had ever met with um, a gay activist. You, that was political suicide. Um, so the governor's office called me back and he said, well, we'll agree to a meeting, but it has to be kept quiet. I was shocked. I really was. I didn't expect to get a response. Um, so we met with uh, then Governor Milton Schapp uh, and we're in a room. And he asked, what, what are the things we want? And I said, well, we could do a commission. We could do an executive order. We could do gay problems. I'm asking for everything and anything I could think of, thinking, you know, I'm not going to get any of this, but you might as well go for the gold ring anyway. Um, and he says, well, you know, let me give to my advisors and we'll see what we can do. And then as we're, go, he says, as we're getting ready to leave, he says, let me show you out. And he puts his arm around me and his press secretary opens the doors and there is the full Pennsylvania press corps taking pictures. And he slaps me on the back and he said, by the way, I caught you on the Cronkite show. As I said, visibility leads to other things, led to the governor of Pennsylvania. Now, that governor, Milton Schapp, became the first governor in the country to issue an executive order stating that state employees could not discriminate on the basis of being LGBT. So you could be employed by the state of Pennsylvania. He then created the first commission to look at the problems that LGBT citizens were having in the state of Pennsylvania. It was called the Commission on Sexual Minority. He then created liaisons to each and every department in the state. So therefore, every commission today, today, governmental commission, LGBT government commission, or every governmental LGBT liaison that exists today, stand on the shoulders of Governor Schaap, or on the shoulders of Walter Cronkite, or on... It's sort of amazing. And that includes all the liaisons and commissions that President Biden has appointed. So that's the story. Yeah. Um, and, and so I like to give those people credit. That's why I want to tell that piece of story. Oh, yes. 
because Chap never gets credit for creating something that is historic in its nature that is still followed through today. And that was copied by many other states. Correct. It still is. I mean, there are several LGBT commissions that are federal thanks to appointment by President um, Biden. All right. So tell me about the Philadelphia Gay News. Philadelphia Gay News is America's most award-winning um, uh, journalistic uh, media. Uh, in fact, uh, we are going to be presented with the Legacy Award this year by the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association um, for 47 years, 53 years in our business of um, reporting, um, all of which started when I was touring um, the state for the Pittsburgh Gay News, which no longer exists. Um, but um, we're sort of like the only activist LGBT publication existing due to its founder, me. I like to say we're the only paper that still have the spirit of Stonewall. We do features that other people are afraid to do deal with. We were doing trans articles and drag articles long before um, any other LGBT media in the country. We did them proudly. We stood for those community. We've done a 15-year investigation into the death of a black trans uh, woman, uh, which we've won awards from, from various organizations. Um, we've done stories on homeless. We've had reporters sleep in parks with homeless youth. Um, we did a, one of the earliest pieces we did that was somewhat um, showed that we were different than anybody else. We did a story on lesbian nuns. We wanted to make. We did our first. We did our story on uh, LGBT liaisons in government, and guess what? They're only here in Pennsylvania. They were nowhere else in our early days. So that was a breakthrough in the story. Um, we interviewed governors, presidents, vice presidents. They've all appeared. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton did an op-ed for us at one time. So um, we're a newspaper of a little different than most others. Are you still in print? Oh, we are in print and online. If you're watching this online now, you can go to E, like electronic, PGN, which stands for Philadelphia Gay News, so that's epgn.com, and you'll see our full editions of the papers there. So what's the status of gay journalism? Um, I, the reason I asked if you were still printing, because some don't anymore. It's all online. Same thing with uh, gay magazines and periodicals. So what, what's, your, what's the status? Well, the change for gay journalism is similar to mainstream journalism right now. We are all um, going through a change, and that includes print, uh, radio, and also television. Uh, I could tell you what those changes are and make you be able to see them really easy. All you have to do is go to your local um, newscast at 6 o'clock or 6.30, local, not national, and you will notice that the weather is sponsored by the um the sports uh, segment is sponsored by, and then you'll find a personality peach, which is sponsored by either the energy company or a car company. Well, that's the future of journalism. It's called sponsored and um, sponsored uh, uh, journalism or branded content. And that's one of the areas we're doing. So, for instance, one of the things we've done is we did something with AARP, which was they wanted us to write stories on LGBT seniors. So we said, okay, we will do that, but we have to pay our people. So will you pay our freelancers for that? Will you give? And they were glad to do that. So that helps us do that. The other way we do it is with collaborations. And we're in collaboration uh, on a website called News Is Out, N-E-W-S-I-S. 
O-U-T, newsisout.com, which is a collaboration of five of the legacy LGBT um, publications in the country, which is Us, Dallas Voice, Washington Blade, Windy City Times, and I'm missing somebody. Um, so forgive me. All right. So um, you're still in print. What's your what's your role with the, the paper right now? I'm the publisher, which means I run two divisions, uh, or three, I guess, one of which is the advertising department, the other is the editorial department, and the third, I guess, would be the business department, which is circulation and distribution and office maintenance and what have you. Your thoughts on what's going on in the country with the anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-drag um, communities out there. What, what's happening and how can we stop it? Well, I think it's not surprising. Um, it is a, I mean, a lot of people are afraid to use the word. It's a backlash. Um, and they should use that word. Um, that, because if you can only understand what's happening now if you know your history. And it's not the first backlash against our community. And when does it happen? It always happens when we're having success. Why does it happen? Same reason it happens against the black community, Latino community, or women, because the status quo are afraid that they're losing some form of power. They don't want to share power with themselves. Um, so uh, that's why the privileged want to remain privileged. Uh, and so basically, they're frightened of us. So here's the interesting aspect about this backlash. It's basically against trans community, drag and trans, I should say. That's where the most of it is aimed at. And I think if you look at our past, you can figure out why it is. Because they used to villainize the gay and lesbian community. They can't do that anymore. We become so visual. We're visible. Um, they don't know or haven't seen the trans community and are uneducated on that issue. So it's easy to bash. Therefore, they're using the trans community to bash all of us. So we have to support our trans brothers and sisters. It's that simple. They have, they, they have seen tra the trans community. They just don't realize they've seen the trans community. Exactly. And it's up to the trans community to decide how they want to be visible. And we need to support them with that. But as you know, I'm a supporter of visibility. What's your next project? What's your big thing coming up? My next project. Well, I'm working with the Stonewall Visitor Center, which opens in June, um, since I'm a Stonewall pioneer. Uh, and that, that's sort of been a fun project. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at Out and Equal in, of all places, Orlando. Hey, I didn't pick the, where the convention site is. I'll be speaking at the uh, National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association convention. Um and I have several, you know, I go out and I do these speeches for people who want to hear about our history. Um, so I usually, uh, during October's LGBT History Month, a lot of corporations have me come out or LGBT organization. And same thing with Pride Month. So June and October, I'm totally crazed. Well, Mark, oh, by the way, um, I noticed that you said you did go to college, but on one of your websites, it listed PhD. Tell me about that. Oh, um, professional homosexual doctorate. <laughs> I thought the H could have been for humor as well. I like that better. I'm going to use that instead. <laughs> Send me my royalty. Mark Segal, th thank you so much for talking. Fascinating story. Oh, my gosh. We could talk for hours more, and uh, we're going to talk again. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It was wonderful being with you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Amber Live Interviews. Remember to subscribe to us so you don't miss a single minute of the fun. And remember, it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJD Pro or by visiting us at AmberLive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. Thank you.